Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My, oh, here we go again. Just, you know, if it was good morning, everybody would say good morning, but just because I said good afternoon. Anyway, it's good, good to see you guys all here. Kevin said that uh, two weeks ago, we, we began this series called Waking the Sleeping Giant. And um, the giant, you know, sometimes being the church. And so we've been talking about God awakening in us certain things. And so I thought I would do a very, very quick review of what we've gone through the first two weeks. Uh, just for a refresher for those of you who've been here for those. And for those of you who've missed one or more, just get a little taste of what we've been looking at. Week one, we, we looked at... Um, God awakening in us our call to serve, and, and we discovered that our call is all about developing a sacrificial mentality that is characterized by interdependence, not independence. And the, the illustration, the object lesson we used was this basket where we said when we're, when we're not being interdependent, we look like this and we're kind of useless like that, but when we allow ourselves to be molded and shaped the way God wants us to and we're willing to work interdependently, then we look like this basket. And of course, this basket is much stronger with everything connected together than any of these individual reeds would be. Then last week, we looked at awakening our shape, which is all about our, you know, um, using our spiritual giftedness, our, our heart or our passions, our abilities and skills, our personality and our experiences to serve God. And the object lesson we used that week was, last week, was this broom. And we talked about how the handle represents God, our Father, who loves us and wants to use us for His purposes. We talked about how this, this wire that is wrapping all these grasses together with the blue cord is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, and uh, the head of the church, and He's the one who unites us in purpose and keeps us all together. And then we talked about how the Holy Spirit is this cord that is going throughout all the grasses, empowering these grasses to be able to do what they're supposed to do, so empowering the church to do what we're supposed to do. And then each one of us is this individual grass, and by ourselves, we really can't do much but put us all together, and we can actually do a lot. So that's what we used last week. And this week, we're going to use another object lesson to talk about God awakening in us something else. And um, it's illustrated by this, and I'd like you to just think about how I'm going to use this to talk about how God is going to awaken in us our motivation. But for now, what I want to do, so I'm just kind of wetting your appetite a little bit. For now, what I want to do is I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, or your Bible apps. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this, and, and then we'll get started. So Paul begins by saying, and now I will show you the most excellent way, and the implication there is to serve. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he describes love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, to introduce today's topic, I, I, I want to tell you a story. It was the, um, the fall of, of 1982 in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. One of the best football teams I ever had the privilege of coaching was in the provincial semifinals. And those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that when, I, my, when Ron and I and our family lived back in Saskatchewan, uh, I used to coach 12 to 15-year-olds in football. Anyway, we're at the semifinals, and we received the opening kickoff, and, and after we did that, we just marched down the field for a touchdown, like just like a hot knife through butter. It was that easy. Instead of kicking the single point, we, we, uh, we went for two points and just made that no problem. Was in, in just a few minutes into the game, we're ahead, 8 nothing. And the guys came off the field. They were cocky. They were laughing. Oh, they were confident. Way, way too confident. And they were already looking ahead to the finals. And I warned them, guys, don't get overconfident here. But they didn't listen. And by the end of the first half, we're losing 13 to 8. We had been out hit. We had been outplayed in every avenue of the game. And to make matters worse, my most talented player, who was actually the oldest kid on my team, a superb running back who was carrying the ball a ton of times for us, was playing very poorly. He was, he was clearly intimidated by the other team. So at halftime, I, I knew I had to do something drastic to motivate this team, or the game was lost. So I had them sit down in one of the end zones, and then to put it bluntly, I laid into them. A, a, a more politically correct way of saying it would be I had an energetic pep talk, <laughs> right? I, I told them, look, you guys are clearly the better team. You're bigger, you're stronger, you're letting yourselves down, and... and, and because, you know, they just clearly, you guys aren't playing up to your potential at all. And then to appeal to a young man's pride, I called the whole bunch of them wimps. I said, all of you are just playing like wimps. Now, I don't know how it is today, but, but back then, uh, no 12 to 15-year-old liked to be called a wimp, right? Anyway, I, I did something next that, that I hardly ever, ever would do as a coach, and I would almost always recommend against it, but I publicly singled out the oldest kid, my running back. I, I knew it was a calculated risk, but somehow I just felt like this is what it was going to take to wake him up. And so I looked him right in the eye, I pointed at him, and I said, and you're the biggest wimp of them all. Didn't know what was going to happen. But instantly, I saw his back stiffen, which is what I was hoping for. And almost as quickly, he shot back at me, No, I'm not, coach. I said, Then prove it. Well, on the opening kickoff of the second half, when we were kicking off to the other team, he actually ran down the field and recovered the ball from the other team. They never got a hold of the ball. And then he played like somebody out of this world. I mean, he just dominated the game. He, he never played a better game. It, in fact, the entire team was different. They, 
it was just unbelievable. They, they were completely and utterly, totally different. You, know, you could see it in their eyes. They were focused. There was no more laughing on the sidelines. And the end result was that half, we outscored our opponents 43-6 to and won the game 51-19 and then went on to win the provincials as well. To this day, I am absolutely certain that they needed their their motivation for playing football reawakened or we would have clearly lost that game even though we were the better team on paper. Now here's the point of that story. You see, I think sometimes we as Christians, Christ followers, sometimes we as the church, we need to have not only our call and our shape reawakened, but also our motivation for serving. We need that awakened as well. And if that's the case, then here's the question we're going to consider this afternoon. And that is, what should our motivation be in serving others? I've got an insert on the the chairs there if you want to use something to follow along. If you're the kind of person that likes to do that, you can pull that out. You can make notes on it, whatever you'd like to do. Or... You know, later on when you get home, you can use it to light your fireplace, whatever you'd like. Anyway, for the answer to this question that's behind me, we need to go to the Bible reading that I just read a few minutes ago. To the last phrase at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, and then the beginning paragraphs of chapter 13. Before I read it again, though, I want to just provide you with some context as to what the Bible says leading up to this passage. In the rest of chapter 12, we're told that as Christ followers, as as the church, we are this interdependent, interconnected body that is gifted and shaped by God to serve others. We're also told that we're each a vital and integral part of this body, no matter what kind of giftedness we've been given, no matter how God has shaped us. And then finally, we're also told that apparently together we're much greater than the sum of our parts. Hence the comparison of the church to a human body where everyone needs one another. So that's a a quick glance at, at what comes before what we're just going to read. And it's basically, if you think about it, it's, it's what, in essence, we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, right? In the first two weeks of this series. Anyway, it's at this point that the writer now goes on to provide our motivation for serving God and others. And I want you to follow along on the screen behind me because this time I'm going to read from the version of the Bible called The Message. I find it's, it's really good sometimes with a passage that we might be familiar with, and I think many of you are familiar with this passage, that sometimes it's good to read it in a different translation or paraphrase because we just get to look at it from a different perspective. And so here's, here's this, this same paragraph that I read earlier in the message. And, and the implication here is Paul is saying, okay, having talked to you about spiritual giftedness and interdependence and, and body life when it comes to serving others... Then he says, now I want to lay out a far better way for you. And here it is. 
He says, if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I, if I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So, no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Let's stop there for now. That, that passage from the Bible gives us our motivation for serving, which is quite simply just loving others. See, Paul is, is telling us that, that we can use our shape, the way in which God has made us and gifted us, which we looked at last week, that we can use all of that in just fantastic and exciting ways to serve others. But without the motivation of love to guide us, our acts of service, he says, will result in a kind of um, emotional and spiritual bankruptcy. I mean, think about that. God is telling us that, that serving others without love is basically meaningless. Apparently, we've completely missed the point if love isn't a part of the serving equation, if love isn't front and center in serving others with our giftedness or our shape. Now, let's, let's look at this word love for a bit. First, uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm not so sure that our society has a great handle on the kind of love that we're being exposed to in this Bible reading. I mean, if you think of it, our society, in our society, we throw this word love around really far too flippantly. And quite frankly, often relation, in relation to things that, that simply don't deserve it. For instance... In the same word, we, we use this word, in, in the same breath, we use this word love to encompass this huge spectrum of, of things. Anything from I love a hot dog to I love my car to I love my iPhone or my iPad or my iPod or my Samsung or my Kindle or whatever to things like I love my mother, my dad, my kids, my wife, my husband. That, that's the way we use this one word. The Bible doesn't do that. You see, this love that, that God is calling us to embrace in 1 Corinthians 13 is not just any kind of love. And I know some of you know this. But the issue is that you could never use the Greek word that's used for love here to describe your undying appreciation for a tubular piece of meat called a hot dog. You couldn't. You know, sometimes that includes ingredients that we don't even want to think about, right? You just couldn't use this word for that. And that's what's so great about the Greek language, which, of course, is, is what the New Testament was originally written in. It, the, the, the New Testament differentiates between different kinds of affection or love by using different words. And, and the Greek word that is used in this passage is, of course, a word that is, that is probably familiar to some of you. It's, it's agape, agape love. 
And it's a word in the Bible that is primarily used in conjunction with our relationships, our relationships with God and our relationships with one another. Now, there's something that I found out that was interesting about this word. Originally, in the secular Greek, before the church got a hold of it, this word was a very neutral and bland word. Okay? And in the church, they changed the meaning of the word to reflect godly love. They, they, they wanted a neutral word that they could shape and mold without its past meaning getting in the way. They, they wanted to, to shape the meaning of this word so that there would be no misunderstanding to others about what it meant. And it's the kind of love that God has placed within us from creation and then desires to cultivate in us when we become his followers through Jesus Christ. It's a love that knows no boundaries, can overcome any barrier. This is the love that, that motivated God to send his son Jesus to pay the penalty of our sins on the cross to provide us a way to get right with him, to, to be spiritually cleansed by him. This is the love that Jesus talked about when he said that all the commands of God could be put into two statements, which are just simply love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the kind of love we're to use in serving others. This is to be the motivation that, that drives our desire to serve. Embracing the love that is necessary in loving God and loving others and in loving ourselves. Now, if, if that is our motivation for serving, the, the next obvious question is this. What does this love look like in, in practical terms, right? What does this love look like that finds its origin in the deepest recesses of God's heart and his mind? And I would suggest to you that to answer that question, we need to go to the next paragraph in 1 Corinthians 13, where, where we find these 15 distinct and compelling phrases to describe what God's love looks like. And, and keep this in mind. They are phrases that all involve, at least initially, some kind of action rather than a feeling. So, in other words, this is the kind of love, God's love, agape love, where action precedes feeling. So the Bible is telling us, let's wrap our heads around this, right? The Bible is telling us, when you or I serve others motivated by this love, God's love, it means that we're not trapped by the inconsistency of our feelings. This love allows us to, to see and act toward others from God's perspective rather than our own, trusting that God is going to bring our feelings into line with our actions. And if you think about that, that's a really freeing kind of love, right? We don't have to feel love towards someone in order to serve them with love. 
Now follow along as I, as I read once again from the message and look at these 15 distinct phrases. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. It doesn't have a swelled head. It doesn't force itself on others. It isn't always me first. It doesn't fly off the handle. It doesn't keep score of the sins of others. It doesn't revel when others grovel. But it takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. And then the implication here is, in other words, this love never dies. That's what the love of God looks like in practical terms. This is the kind of love that, that God wants to mature in us, in, in part, for the purpose of serving others. So that being the case, what I want us to do is just spend a few minutes considering these 15 characteristics of, of, of God's love, and, and I want to look at them through a kind of a broad spectrum, okay? And I'm just going to point out two general thoughts about them. And first, there's this sense of commitment longevity or, or perseverance to this love. And, and we see that in the first and the last statements in, in this description on love in the Bible. We see it in these statements. It says, you know, love is patient or it never gives up. Love always perseveres or keeps going to the end. Or love never fails or never dies. You see, this is the kind of love that says, I, I'm going to serve others for the long haul. I'm going to serve with an attitude of availability, with, with a heart that oozes obedience. I'm going to serve, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. And, and because remember, even in, in our weaknesses, God promises to be our strength. And I've shared this before with, with, the, with the fatigue that I've dealt with over the last 20 years. It's so many times that verse has proven true or that concept has proven true. Anyway, this love says, God doesn't give up on, you know, God doesn't give up on me, so I'm not going to give up on others or my church, or whatever. See, the Bible is very clear. This, this is one area of our lives, serving, that we should never consider retiring from. Because there is nothing more fulfilling and, and nothing more um, enjoyable than serving others motivated by agape love. That, that's what actually truly keeps us alive. Oh, yes, there may be periods of time where we, we just can't do what we once did. Either we're, we're ill or we're aging or, or maybe we're in a different life situation right now. But the thing is this. To God, we are never useless to God. Regardless of how we might feel or what we're going through. Let me illustrate what I mean by telling you this story. After World War II there was this Catholic friar named Pierre who felt this calling to begin working with the beggars in Paris, many of whom were freezing to death in the streets. And what he did was this. He helped mobilize them into a team. You see, originally they were just out there sporadically and individually, you know, collecting bottles and rags to sell just so they get something to hopefully fill their bellies with. And so what he did is he said, no, no, we're going to get intentional now and you're going to scour the city in groups and you're going to go all these different places and you're going to gather as many bottles as you can. 
So they began doing that. And they started getting so many bottles that they actually built a warehouse from um, discarded bricks from World War II, right? And they started a business sorting out these huge amount of bottles that they obtained from big hotels and businesses. And then finally, Pierre inspired each one of his beggars by giving them each a responsibility to help another beggar who was poorer than themselves. And that's when this project really took off. Because it was no longer about self-preservation. It was about helping others develop a better life. I mean, think of it. A beggar was supposed to look for somebody poorer than themselves to help. Now, this went on for many years, eventually spreading to other countries as well. And then one day, this friar, Pierre, showed up at a leprosy clinic in India where he met Dr. Paul Brandt. And he was the doctor I referenced on, on, on week one of this series. Anyway, here's what he told the doctor. He said, to tell you the truth, there are no beggars left in Paris. And I've got to find somebody for my beggars to help. Because if I don't find people worse off than my beggars, this movement could turn inward. And if that happens, they'll just become a powerful, rich organization and the whole spiritual impact will be lost. He said, they'll have no one left to serve. And so what all of these beggars did is they ended up raising money for a hospital wing in India. You see, when we serve, when we serve with God's love, it's infectious. There's naturally a sense of longevity to it. It's a, it's a lifetime commitment. It's a, it's a lifelong desire when God's love is involved in the equation of serving. You just can't turn it off and on. It's that infectious. So that's the first thing. There's this sense of commitment to this love in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, a second huge aspect of this love is this. It, it's all about being less self-oriented and more other-focused or about being more humble. Now, we're not going to take the opportunity to read that again, but if you do that later, I, I want you to pay attention to that. And you'll see that theme is just played out over and over again in those remaining characteristics. God's love is all about being other-oriented and humble of heart. And here's an example of what that looks like. There was once this bright college student named John. And shortly after crossing over the line of faith and becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Christ, he decided, you know what, I, I need to attend church. And there was a church right across the street from the campus where he was studying. So he decided to go there. Now, this was, this was back a few years, so it was a well-dressed church, pretty conservative church. They were hoping to minister to the students across the street, but really had no clue as to how they were going to do that. And one Sunday, in, in walks John, wearing no shoes, a pair of jeans, T-shirt, and just this wild-looking hair. And the service had already begun, and so as everybody else is singing and stuff, he starts down the aisle looking for a seat. But the church is completely packed. The 
people, all dressed in their nice clothes, are looking at him uncomfortably. You see, they hadn't seen many people like John in their church looking like him before. Now, as he got closer and closer to the front, he realized <laughs> there are no seats, at least none that were being given to him. And so he did what he always did when he gathered with other people. He squatted down on the carpet and did it right in front of the pulpit. Now, this had never happened in this church before. Never. And a lot of people were uncomfortable with what they were seeing and, and kind of upset, and the tension in the air was becoming a little bit thick. Most everybody is thinking the same thing. You know, somebody should do something. Somebody should tell him how things are done here, right? Finally, from the back, a deacon of the church, an elderly man in his 80s, silver gray hair, three-piece suit, actually had a pocket watch, supposedly a godly man, very elegant, very dignified, very courtly, made his way slowly down the aisle. And, of course, walking with a cane, it took him quite some time to get to the front. Everybody was thinking, you can't blame the man for what he's about to do. But then something very strange happened. When he finally got to the front, and it took him some time to get there, the elderly man dropped his cane, and with great difficulty, he lowered himself and sat right next down to John and worshipped. When the pastor finally gained his composure, he said, what I'm about to preach, you will never remember. What you have just seen, you will never forget. That's the kind of selfless, humble love we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13 when it comes to serving others. It's, it's moving beyond our own needs. It's you know, moving beyond our comfort zones and our wants in the church and looking to the needs of others, both those inside the church and those outside the church. You see, this, this love asks this question. What would I be willing to give up for the sake of others? In fact, in, in short, to love like this, we, we really need a, a servant's heart. We, we need the heart of Jesus. For example, in, in Matthew 20, Jesus said that he came to serve, not to be served. That's what our Savior said. And let's be honest. Now, if we're really honest, there are probably too many times when we, are either, we either come to church or we're tempted to come to church with an attitude that says, serve me. You know, feed, feed me, uh, meet my needs. But that's not really what a believer should, should look like. We need to come to others like Jesus did, to serve, not to be served. Now, not that our needs aren't important, but we just have to have the right perspective toward them, which is why Jesus, on, on the night before his death, provided us with this Great example of what he meant by that. 
it happened in context that is really you know, just hilarious, really. I mean, just after his disciples had been discussing with one another who was the greatest among them, right? So not a, low, not a whole lot of humility there. Just after that, instead of addressing that, Jesus quietly gets up from the table and he walks to a basin and he pours water into this basin and then he takes a towel and he wraps it around himself now think of it, all the, all the disciples are looking at this because it's looking familiar but it's not looking like something that they're their, their, their Messiah should be doing, their, their rabbi should be doing. And then Jesus takes this container that is used for washing feet and he, he gets in front of each one of his disciples and slowly washes their dusty, dirty feet. And as he's doing this, all the disciples are thinking, this is, this is not good. This is, this is unacceptable. This is, uh, this, this is not the conduct of a rabbi. I mean, um, not their highly esteemed teacher. Because why would he lower himself to do what a servant should be doing? And then just after doing this, this is what Jesus said to them. Do you understand what I have done for you? I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Someone has said that, that we as Christians belong to something called the order of the towel. He says, um, this is the standard that we should bear proudly in the church. A serving towel, like, like Jesus used to wash his disciples' feet. He said, this in essence is one of the best symbols to describe the kind of love that we should be demonstrating in serving others. It's really the unofficial symbol of a Christian servant's heart. Now, this particular towel was given to me by a church on the last Sunday that I was working with them. And on it, it says, thanks for serving. It's embroidered there, thanks for serving, and then it has the name of the church. And they often gave out that towel to people in their church. You see, as a Christ follower, you belong to the order of the towel. So bear it proudly. So that's the glove. That's the love that, that God wants us to use in, in serving others. That's to be our motivation in serving. Let me conclude with this. In his book, Margin, Dr. Swenson says, you know, one of the interesting things about love is that it's not a mathematical entity. When divided, love actually multiplies. Meaning, whether you have one child, two, or four, each one is loved 100%. He goes on to say, love is the currency 
of the relational life, the primary currency of God's economics. And then he explains further. He says, love isn't like other resources. There's an infinite supply of, of love. Uh, the more it's used, the more its supply increases. He says, some guard their supply of love, doling it out in portions. But this kind of thinking works with money, not with love. He says, with money, the more you hoard, the richer you become. But with love, the more you spend, the richer you become. You see, our motivation for serving others sacrificially, for, for using the way that God has made and gifted us, is this love, this agape love. Now, when, when we don't serve in that manner, then, then we look like this object lesson right here. We look like those nails that are on the bottom of this little board here, all around this one nail that has been nailed into the board. They're kind of spread all over the place on that little board. The object is this, that the, the nail that's standing upright, that's Christ, who is the head of the church. And um, when we're not connected to the head, then um, we're not serving out of love. In fact, the Bible, remember, goes on to say we're just this loud noise when we serve without love. You know what? Something interesting happens when we begin to uh, serve out of loving others. When we desire to, to serve out of loving others, we become this uh, wondrous, wondrous thing. We become this, this group of people who are interconnected uniquely balanced, united in purpose, working in harmony to serve others. Beautiful, isn't it? Huh? I mean, that's, that's what our serving looks like when we've allowed God to awaken in us our motivation for serving, to serve with the love of God. Let's pray.